and that was the most winnable one that we'd get for a long time, and we just pissed it down the drain. We absolutely pissed that game down the drain. Don't any one of you forget about it. Well, as we welcome you to Unplug It, the thought that popped into my head over the last three or four days since Saturday night was actually a remake of a film made in the 90s. There was a Sylvester Stallone movie in the 90s, Judge Dredd, which was remade in about 2012. And in that movie, they create a fictional drug called Slow Mo. And what they actually do with people that they wish to punish is that they inject them with this drug Slow Mo and it changes their perception of time to only 1% of normal speed. Then they throw people off buildings and then they basically experience what it's like to fall for about an hour and a half rather than the normal time that it would take you to fall and, and hit the ground. So they get to experience all of that fear and paranoia of knowing what's going to happen to them when they hit the ground. That was 100% St Kilda's game on Saturday night. It's like we'd been stung with this drug at the start of the game. You'd been thrown off the building. You knew you were falling. You knew what was going to happen. You just had to endure the ride all the way through to the end. And there were some teasing moments. We hit the front with two minutes to go, which seemed completely against the run of things. But at that point, you're liking, oh, shit, it's hard to score. We, we should hang on here. We were in front by a point. Uh, and then Robbie Gray does it to us again and a, a rekindling of one of our worst home and away defeats in history back in 2017. We kicked four goals 18, which was one goal 15 after we were three goals three. Any one of those chances and we win the game, just one of them. In the first quarter, we should have kicked at least five goals. And the cruel irony is we only needed to kick five for the game and we would have won. Uh, a very frustrating night at the office where we did quite a few things right, but did one thing consistently wrong the whole way through, and it cost us four points, which could be very, very valuable. And there's all those debates forever in a day about where the game should have been played. And yes, you'd love to play it at our home ground, but the reality was it was in Cairns. We should have won, and we didn't. Uh, Nick, your sum- summation of what was a, uh, <clears throat> yeah one that one that had every conceivable layer of frustration. Yeah, I mean, you, you knew that, Nick. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how to follow. We may as well just wrap up after that uh, intro. I think slow mo is the the perfect description of of watching that second half. But no, you're right. It was it was incredibly frustrating. I mean, the, we did so much right. We did so much right. Uh, we dominated most of the game, and just couldn't finish it off. And I mean, how many times have we have we had this discussion, this exact discussion? Um, and you know, you know, I'm sure it goes to that hashtag that we all know. We you know we've been talking about it for mm. the last six or, or seven weeks um, on Twitter and and other social channels. And I'm sure we'll get to that a little bit later on. But it was incredibly frustrating. You, you saw it uh, from so far ahead. You, you knew that they were going to push in that last quarter. You knew that they were going to come, and you knew that there was going to be Robbie Gray in the last minute. You knew. You just knew all of this was going to happen. And it just goes to that that mantra that we've been talking about. That's so St Kilda. Um, it was incredibly difficult to watch. The whole game was incredibly difficult to watch. It was it was a slog. Um, you know, it, it was just uh, when when you take the lead with two minutes to go, and it's a game like that where I saw Charlie Clawson, who who was on our show last year, describe it on his podcast as playing air hockey in in the slop. You know, it was just two teams just pushing the ball back and forth along the ground. Um, when, when you take the lead in in those conditions having been up all game and then you lose it and you get it back again 
with with a minute or 90 seconds or whatever to go. Um, and you've got the ball. You've got possession of the ball. And H, I saw you tweet something similar mm-hmm. um, during the week. I don't remember if it was Sunday morning or, or Monday or whatever it was. But in that situation, you shouldn't lose the game. In that type of environment, in that stadium, in those conditions, in that situation, you should not lose the game. But you just knew. You just knew that it was going to happen some way, somehow it was going to happen. And we shot ourselves in the foot so many times during the second half of that game that it, it was inevitable. And um, it was something along those lines, but it, it I sort of also made the mention of, I'd, I'd hate to think that the AFL leave there after that match thinking, oh, we've put up a great show for the Queenslanders. We're, we're going to steal the rugby league territory here. You're not going to do it with that game. That was a terrible game. Uh, it, if I was a neutral, I would have switched off. That it was not good to watch. Um, it, it, and the sort of lead that you pick, we picked out early. You get into that position with that sort of conditions playing in. You you have to hold on. We've basically gone. Okay, we've got far enough ahead, and it almost felt like, all right, we'll just try and save it a bit, I guess, or we'll, we'll change the way we play which is the worst thing we could have done. We just had to keep playing the same way we played that first quarter and a bit. And you you win. We seem to go from get the ground, get down the field to, okay, we'll, we'll wait for them to turn it over, get it back and then possess the ball. And that's not how you play in those conditions. It, it, you almost thought, why did we change how we were playing. It, I saw the switch and I'm going, this is not good. This is not good at all. So, and as we saw, it's exactly what happened. Remarkably similar game to the, uh, to the Adelaide one last year, Nick, um, you know, it's lower scoring, but same trend. Yeah. I mean that, yeah, this is similar trend, but I, I, I do want to ask you guys, H, you mentioned playing in, in those conditions and, and switching things up. I want to ask you guys about selection going into the game. Um, everyone knew what sort of conditions they were going to be in Cairns. It was going to be hazy and humid and wet and slippery and sloppy and all of these things. Everyone knew. It's We knew that days out. And yet we went into the game with Tom Campbell and nothing against Tom Campbell. He's a good, honest footballer. He's a, he's a good ruckman. He's great in, in ruck contests, but doesn't offer much around the ground or up forward. Uh, to his credit, he did take a strong contested market at one point in the, in the second half. But when you look at look at those conditions, and we knew that we were down Rowan Marshall, but then you look at the way that Port set up and, and their their system, they went in with Sam Powell Pepper as their second ruck. They had a, a, an extra runner as their uh, medical sub. And we went in with Tom Campbell as a second ruck who, who offers us not much around the ground, good, honest effort, but not much else. And Jared Lynott, another tall kind of running defender, but, but a key back essentially uh, as our sub. Um, did we get it wrong at the selection table? I'd say so. I mean, Mason Wood could have been the second rug. Uh, Liner himself could have been the, the second rug. And there's a temptation, certainly, that, you know, Marshall doesn't play, so you just go with Ryder. I know he's always a bit of an injury risk. Or even if you just want to, you know, uh, you know, play battle as a second ruck and restructure your defence with Liner or something like that. Um, but, yeah, there, there would have been that that temptation. But... Yeah, it's it's remarkable. Before 
um, before I throw that one your way, H. I mean, there's probably a game where, you know, every single thing had to go wrong to lose. Like there might have been 53 things that went wrong, that if 52 of them went wrong and one didn't, then we would still win the game. I mean, as you said, H, we got, I think, nearly 20 points in front in a game that was 40 each, basically. So you... You lead by half your end up your eventual score, and you get overrun. Like the, the percentages of it don't make sense. There was the fifty meter penalty to Robbie Gray in the third quarter. There was the three misses in a row in that quarter. King, Higgins, Gresham. Uh, King takes that mark at the start of the last quarter, kicks a goal, takes another mark, and he kicks the next one. We're home. Um, little decisions where obviously Sebros has passed to Jack Higgins, misses him by half a meter, uh, almost half volleys it. Um, that would have been a mark. 50 metres from goal with a minute to go, scores level. At the very least, you don't lose. Um, you should probably force a score, but at worst, it's a draw. Um, all of those little bits and pieces, uh, Dougal Howard not running at Robbie Gray in the pocket just to put some pressure on that kick so it's not almost a shot at goal and then you set up, just at least make him try to kick over you or draw a smother or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, I think selection was one of those factors of which there were many, unfortunately. Well, it's quite interesting because like, Nick talked about the sub happening for the for Port. There was actually during the day prior to that, I've been listening to something and I was suggesting that the rule should be once one team makes a sub, the other team should be free to do what they want with theirs because all of a sudden the other team's got a fresh player. And... I've I've always hated this sub rule. I, I've I would like to see the back of it. I've I've never liked it. I've always said this is ridiculous. I mean, fair enough. If you make the rule, a player gets injured in the first quarter, you can swap them. But after that, that's it. It, it, it that's just bad luck. It's, it's something really does need to be done with that. Either if a player gets subbed out, they've got to miss two weeks, or anything like that. Or if a sub happens, the other team's free to use their sub how they wish so when we look at that and go well if that's the case they have their sub change we go okay what are we going to do cam gets subbed off and that's as simple as it is that something that worked against this because as soon as they as soon as i heard it was activated i was like oh here we go um because you had um oh so who was the like dersma came on yeah and you're going they've got another run Mm. that that's that's how it is they've lost a big player and they've got to gain another runner and that's exactly what we need for what it's worth and, i think the, they they are meant to miss the next week if you get subbed out of a game unless you get permission from only for concussion to, right but it's so, only concussion because yeah. robbie gray was subbed out last week so Correct. he would have missed yeah yeah, yeah. and mm. mitch georgiades has been named this week for port having been he, subbed out against us which is a ridiculous rule so yeah, why don't we play funny buggers as well then Tom Campbell well, could yeah. have easily done should've a hamstring off, yeah. in the third quarter. Mm. Yep. So. yep, yep, yep. Mm. Should have limped off. Should have done something. But yeah, it, it's it really is a rule that has annoyed me a lot for the last couple of years that it's been in. It annoyed me the first time they brought it in five or well, ten years ago, almost now. It, I've never liked it. I still don't like it, and I'd really like to see the back of it or change the rule the way it's it's. Um, interpreted that either the player has to miss or it's free for all once one team does it. And it's so yeah, and, it would have yeah. made a massive difference for us. I mean we would have brought in another defender. Um 
and a, a better runner over the top of Campbell or it probably would have been Campbell when you look back at it. I mean, it could have been Ryder. He wasn't exactly lighting up the place. Um, all in all, Campbell was maybe just a little bit better than him. He, he actually did some really nice stuff around the ground. I, I was actually quite impressed in the first quarter by him. I'm going, oh, this, this guy's not too bad, actually. So considering the conditions he played in, he, he wasn't all that bad. So he's, he's certainly a an upgraded hunter from last year. That's that's one way we can look at him if we need to call upon him. Um, but it just, just definitely wasn't the right selections for the for day, sure. it seems. For sure. And, and again, I, I think it, I think we need to mention that it's it's not against Tom Campbell. It's it's not a, a you know not taking a shot at him like you said he did some nice things. It was just a matter of what he's going to give us the greatest advantage to win that game of football. Mm. And clearly, exactly it's not the reason it's not the reason we lost the game. We kicked four goals, eighteen. You know, we mm. lost that game of football. Um, but there are a number of things that we could have done better to ensure that that didn't happen in the first place. And you know, Port Port did that better than us. Yeah, hard to, hard to argue with, with any of that. Um, before we get into some some votes, so our, our guest tonight will be Ross Oakley on the program. Now, Ross Oakley played 62 games for the Saints. We won most of them. It was in a very good era in the 60s. He was desperately unlucky. He missed the 1965 grand final with a serious knee injury and then missed the 1966 grand final with a serious knee injury. Both of them sustained in semifinals against Collingwood, so perilously close to that. But he also obviously ran the competition for over a decade. That's clearly going to be a polarising guest for uh, for football fans and a lot of Saints fans as well. But uh, we look forward to chatting to, to him and, and talking about a number of issues uh, across his tenure in the game. So it'll be a, a mostly St Kilda chat, but a lot of broadly football-related stuff uh, in that conversation as well. I guess we'll wrap a bow on that shit show from uh, Saturday night with the votes. Uh, to me, it was relatively straightforward. I gave one vote actually to, to one of the kids in the sire, Wanganin Malera. I thought he was very good. I thought he was our cleanest player. Even periods where he, you know, he, he ran the ball about 100 metres down the outer side wing by punching it forward and kicking it forward. He looked our steadiest player in the conditions. Um, I gave – it was a, a tricky look over the, the course of the game for, for, for mine overall, but I gave two votes to Jack Steele, um, who I thought was you know pretty solid, didn't make many mistakes, dropped a couple of marks like everyone did, but overall I think was our most solid inside player. And in the end, the guy that probably gave us the best blend between inside and outside was actually Seb Ross. So I gave him the three on the course of the day. So one to Wanganin Malera, two to Steele, and three to Ross, Nick. Very similar. I went one to Seb Ross. I mean, it was a a very even balanced performance from Seb Ross. I think you're right about that combination of inside outside Um, at 31 touches, seven inside fifties and seven intercepts just goes to show that between the arcs, he was really important for us. Um, I gave two votes to Naziah Wanganin Miller. Uh, You're right. He he was incredibly clean in in those conditions for what a, a five gamer to be as clean and as smooth with and without the ball was really impressive. 18 touches, just under 470 metres gained at 73% disposal efficiency um, of 13 kicks. And again, in, in those conditions, that's that's nothing to sneeze at. And he just seems to be growing in confidence week after week. And 
uh, is really impressive so far. He's really impressed me. And three votes to the skipper, Jack Steele, 27 touches, eight tackles, six clearances, five inside 50s and 450 metres gain. He just continues to do everything. Um, you know, he perhaps hasn't quite reached the heights of, of his previous two years, but again, he's not, he's not the only one that we rely on in the middle of the ground anymore. And there are others that are kind of stepping up to, to take some of the pressure off, but he's still quite clearly, um, you know, the leader and, and the heart and soul of, of this team. And, um, you know, I, I'm not sure where we'd be without, without Jack Steele, even with the other guys stepping up and, uh, three votes to, uh, to the captain for mine. H. Similar once again. Um, I, I was so close. I was close to giving Mangani Malira a vote. He, he's, he's my biggest apology. Um, I actually gave one to Mason Wood. I thought his game was actually really good. Let our contest a possession. He was throwing himself in there. He was basically trying to chase everything down. And yeah, give, giving us good, good drive at the ball as well. When he actually got the ball too. He, every time he got it, he pretty much moved it forward. It's, he played that kind of wet game that we wanted everyone out there playing hard contested, move the ball to your advantage. That that's, that's as simple as the game is. And that's what he did. And uh, yeah, I think it was one of the, probably one of the most um, valuable plates we had there on the night. Um, the two to uh, Seb Ross, just to give him the full set. Um, as the same, great game. He topped the possessions, uh, top the inside fifties, um, basically was was everywhere. He's had he, he's been in good form. He's been in good form, and we just want him to continue this. And big game this week as well. If he can be, I guess a bit of like maybe an X factor this week, that they're going to watch our bigger names and that sort of thing. If he can sort of sneak under the radar a bit, he can be quite damaging and give us great service. And on the back of what he did on the weekend, he can really give us a good good chance this weekend. So, um, and then yeah, for the first time this year, I'm giving Jack Steele three. It's as for the reasons you basically you gave before the it, it was the captain's game. He gave us um, gave, gave us the service that we wanted from him. Um, that the one mark that he did take that was that the. the massive sky ball that came over his head that he's taken the decent mark with. It was really not an easy thing to do on a night like that. It's, it's just the one pilot that I picked out from him that I remember. And it's yeah, that, that workman effort that we know he gives and it, it like last year, most games um, shone above the rest of them. That I guess concludes the, the wrap of the, Port Adelaide game. Hopefully that part of the podcast, the moment people listen to it, actually does self-destruct. Uh, no one ever has to, to speak of that again. And hopefully we never have to speak of it again. We may have to call on it again if things go pear-shaped and we might look at that as a, a turning point. But fingers crossed it it doesn't eventuate. Now, as we said, our next guest, a, a prominent St Kilda player and then a prominent league administrator. And hopefully a lot of the insights uh, that will come from our next guest uh, will be quite interesting about the state of the game through that period as well. I speak of former league boss and former Saint, Ross Oakley. If we don't uh, obtain a merger, then clubs will just fall over. That's what will happen. And we want to avoid that. We think it's better to retain 
the traditions of the clubs through a merger than to have a club just fall over and disappear out of the competition. Well, next guest this week is a special one. A lot of people remember Ross Oakley, of course, for uh, his role as the AFL CEO from 1986 through to 1996, other roles he's had in sports since, but was a former Saint and a very unlucky one at that. He actually has the second highest winning percentage of any St Kilda player that's played more than 50 games. Now you look at our history and suggest that uh, that's probably not hugely surprising given the era in which he played, but uh, was seriously injured in the 1965 semi-final against Collingwood and in the semi-final of 1966. St Kilda would play in the grand final in both of those years and obviously win the premiership in 1966. So he was perilously close to being uh, such a vital cog in that uh, most famous of St Kilda wins. But Ross, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure. Um, I, I guess when you when you talk to people about your career, obviously you, you are such a, re, a revered figure as somebody who ran the game. Do you find that you often have to remind people that you played for St Kilda as well because it's not the first thing they go to? Um, well, I, yeah, I suppose they do, uh, particularly the younger people because they weren't around when I played football. Um, but... Um, Oh, you know, that, that, that doesn't fuss me. It, it's, you know, that's a, it's time passed and uh, they were great days, but um, uh, all we've got is memories now. Ross, I'm sure we'll get to um, elements of, of your time running the, running the game a little bit later on, but why don't we start off with uh, how, how did you end up at St Kilda? Uh, it, it, I was at school um, in 1961. And uh, play, I went to Wesley and we, it was our third uh, premiership in a row we won at school. And uh, at the end of that uh, school year, um, the Collegians A-grade uh, side, which is the old Wesley Collegians, asked me to come down and play the last three games of the year and, and qualify for the finals, which I did. And I played in the finals and at the grand final, um, uh, Alan Jeans was watching and uh, it was very casual. Um, I, I kicked a few goals in that in that final, and uh, uh, he came up to him in the rooms after after we won the flag, and uh, said, uh, "Laddie, um, I think you should come down and train with us." And if you knew Alan Jeans, you'd know exactly. He'd call me Laddie, and um, um, I said, "Yes, Mister Jeans, I'd be I'd be delighted to do that." No talking me into it all. So they sent me a, um, a notice uh, early in the year, early in the new year, and uh, I went down to St Kilda. And I was in the I was in the St Kilda district. You know that we had zones in those days, and uh, I was in the St Kilda district. So um, it all worked pretty well. So pretty much broke into the team coming towards the end of '62. 63 played a fair amount of games again. Um, took a, to round six to get into the side. Was there an injury or was it just a yeah? I had a an injury, case of, yeah. I had an injury. Uh, I broke my leg, um, in a practice match, and uh, I was back into the pack, and the pack fell on me, and I, I broke the uh, uh, bone in my leg, lower leg. 
So I missed quite a few games at the start of the year and then got into the team and, and played for the rest of the year. Looking at, uh, obviously, your injuries will get discussed at, at some point and what happened in those finals, but the second last game you ever played for the club, that game against Hawthorne at the end of 66, a significant game. There was the talk around the Bulldog injury. We're actually in trouble a little bit against a team that missed the finals. Mm. We had to dig it out to win. You've kicked three, had 19 possessions. I guess how proud of you of the fact that I guess if you didn't play that well that day, St Kilda probably don't win the flag. Yeah, look, there are always there are always moments like that that um, uh, that uh, you can look back on. Um, but um, uh, you know, um, we had a fantastic team, and, and there was always someone able to bob up. Um, you know, when you had players like Borlock and Stewart and Dietrich and Rossi Smith, I mean, we just Oh, I could go on. Um, uh, they, were, they were all fantastic. Vernon Howe, uh, all Brownlow medalists, um, except for Doc, but he's, a, he's certainly a Hall of Famer. Um, we had a fantastic team, and there was always someone who was, who was able to step up and, uh, and do something to get us out of a hole, and that was the strength of the team, I think. Speaking of strengths of the team, that that sixty five year, obviously, we, we kind of everything started to to come together for us as as a football club. Um, a, a heap of talent, as as you just mentioned. But what was it? At, I guess at the start or, or midway through sixty five, that kind of you know kind of brought the brought the group together to the, the point that they were ready to play off in a, in a grand final. Well, it had been building up. I mean, we 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 were. Uh... We were, we were really starting to build towards 65 in 64 and 63, getting players coming into the side, strengthening the side right through that period. Um, so um, it, was, it was a build-up, and in 65, everything seemed to go pretty right for us um, and uh, set us up for the, for the 66 uh, win. I've always said that you know you always you always need to lose a grand final to uh, to get the motivation to uh, to come back and win one, and it, and it seems to have happened right through uh, right through the history of football. And that transition to sixty five losing obviously still hurts missing out on the game, and then you get back, you go through sixty six, and the same thing happens again, and you're sitting on the sideline again. Yeah. What's the sort of thoughts going through your head at that time? Basically, watching him lose and then watching him win, and what what are the thoughts on the days in, in those two situations? Well, on the day that we won it, I was sitting up in the stand with Carl Dittrich. Uh, remember, he'd, he'd been suspended, so uh, he was pretty down on the mouth. But we were ecstatic about the win. Uh, we the moment the siren went, we both bounded out of the stand, down through the rooms and out onto the ground. And uh, we sort of, you know, joined in with the celebrations on, on the ground. But there was still a bit of a feeling that you weren't part of it because you weren't out there on the day. And unfortunately, uh, I think St Kilda um, uh, administration at the time uh, allowed that to occur and allowed it to continue. and. Uh, um, you know, there's the famous story where they uh, they had the, uh, the big party after party, and and I wasn't invited, and neither was Carl. 
believe it or not. They didn't have room, but uh, quite a few of the administrators were there and trainers and whatever else, but there wasn't room for us. Then Carl got a ring to say yeah, someone had dropped out, he, he was in, and he, so he went along. Then uh, I think the day before, I got a phone call to say, someone else has dropped out, you're in. I said, well, uh, I'm unavailable. I've organised something else. So I didn't go to the Arthur party because I, I had my nose out of joint severely. Um, and uh, they took um, – the only picture that I think that the, the club took that year was the uh, 20 players that made the ground. And uh, you know, I played pretty much right through the year, and so had Carl. And uh, we didn't even get a look in. It wasn't, it wasn't even, uh, you know, a, a picture taken. I understand they take a picture of the premiership players, but there wasn't even a club picture taken, the, the list, as it were, for that, for that year. So um, I, um, I thought that was a bit, bit uh, ordinary. But ever since then, the players, when the players have had a function, have always invited Carl and I. And, made us feel part of part of what happened. And I really appreciated that from the from the guys. Um because it was the, the team themselves that were actually showing the club administration what what this is all about. It's it's about everyone that contributed, not just on that one day, but everyone that contributed to the club. So uh yeah, I've been to quite a few of the functions that the premiership team have um have had since that uh, since that time, and and I think I also went to a club organised one. So I think the clubs learnt some lessons too out of all of that. Having having said all that, and and having been through that that exact experience, and and also having been on the other side as, as someone who's kind of led led the league, how do you feel about the comparisons with other, um, I guess, international sports? Where if you're on the if you're on the squad, if you're on the roster of a championship winning team, you still counted as a championship player like the NBA or the premier league. If you play a certain yep. number of games, you get, you, you get called a, a premier league winning player. Um, how, how does that sit with you? Oh, look, I, my, my views and feelings are, are right out there. I've discussed them on many occasions. So it's, it's not, it's not just the 18 or 20 players that ran out in the field on the day. Uh, You've got to get there. And uh, there's a lot of players during the year that help you get there. And the 20 players that actually represent the club on that day have got a privilege because they they actually are the ones that selected on the day as a result of uh, all sorts of things, of them playing well, but also other players being injured, other players missing out as a result of a a tribunal uh, mishap. But, uh, you know, the way to build... The way to build a group and to build a club is to is to value everyone and to uh, let everyone know that um, uh, they're valued. Did, did you have I, those Did you have those discussions when you were when you were chairman and, and CEO of, of the league with either with the clubs or the or the rules committee about how to how to value those players that didn't play on the day? No, I didn't. Uh, I must admit, um, there weren't really many opportunities to to do that. Uh, that's the sort of thing that you do at a, I think at a at a private meeting of a club where all the players gather around and they ask you for some thoughts about, you know, how, what makes a good club, and that's when I discuss it. Uh, but 
not at a you know, not at some of the the, the functions that uh, that I went to. So no, I haven't. I haven't really discussed it. Uh, I've discussed it with the players. Um, you know, the, the disappointment I had. And, um, that's that's the way the game goes. But, uh, I think I think things are changing. I think clubs now uh, really do value all the contributors, and and that uh, um, they, um, they 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 show that too in the way that the, the players gather around the club and and, and become more part of a one one uh, um, football team. Now, as we, we mentioned, you're effectively, you know, running the competition from, from 1986 through to, to 96. Now, in the mid-80s, the, the competition was, you know, an interesting position. Like, even clubs that we know now to be powerful, clubs like Collingwood weren't in the strongest shape. I mean, your former club, St Kilda, had just won a fourth consecutive wooden spoon. Over yeah. that next decade, so much happened. We had the growth of uh, Friday night football. We had night finals. We had the introduction of five interstate clubs that the league transitioned from the VFL to the AFL. We had the merger, obviously, between uh, Brisbane and, and Fitzroy and, and all others that were discussed over that journey. Of all of those, is there one that you look at over your tenure in the game as the most significant transformation or the most significant legacy, if you will? Yeah, I, I, I think um, there are lots of things that contribute to all of that. But you've got to remember that when we started to do, when we started to transition to a national league, the league was broke. It was dead set broke, and the the expansion to a national competition was as much to save us as it was to save the game, hmm. um, uh, to save the the VFL as it was to save the the game Australia wide. Because um, you know sponsors were starting to think more nationally and not by state, and and the TV networks were starting to set up. Uh, up until then, all the stations were all independent and and and, and they were happy to cover a, a game in their state, but forget about the rest of it. So it was all these things came together uh, in that um, early, early you know, mid mid to late eighties period. But I think the the one thing, and I mentioned this in my book, the one thing that I think we did that that saved the league was to eventually get Sydney to be successful. We, If we had not have been successful in the New South Wales market, forget the National League. Um, and um, uh, we, when we got uh, Richard Collis involved and we got Kelvin Templeton in as, in as the CEO, uh, things started to move and people who knew football rather than Edelson, who didn't know, you know, a, a boot from a bloody football, um, and a number of others, um, we started to get football people involved and they knew what to do and they knew how to gather people around them to make a club strong. And Richard Collis was was a major factor in that. He was there for a long, long while and... And Sydney had some great success while he was there as chairman. Now, Darren mentioned mergers and all that that happened during your time. There was plenty of possible ones that could have gone through in all that time. You got Fitzroy and Footscray and Melbourne oh. Hawthorne, Hawthorne's Akilda, Carlton, and 
I think North at one time or even talked about. Yeah. Is, is there any that were like basically a signature away from happening? Were they that close that it was almost really? Well, an actual there was thing? One, yeah, there's one you didn't mention, which was a, a, a combination of Melbourne, North Melbourne, and who's the other one? Um, Melbourne, North Melbourne, and someone else. It might have been. It might have been. Uh, it might have been Fitzroy or Footscray. Or Footscray. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Right. So they they were all struggling at the time, and Peter Scanlon, uh, one of the commissioners at the time, uh, he was a great North Melbourne man. Um, he he got these guys together, and they started to talk about a team called Melbourne United. And uh, it really progressed along very well until they got to the stage of trying to decide who'd be president. And that's when it fell apart. <laughs> so you, you, can, you can have some of the greatest ideas, but then when the, when the passion of it all gets in the way, you get into trouble. Now, on on the topic of mergers, you obviously copped a, a fair bit of flack during those those late eighty years, and to the point where you know there were some some pretty um, nasty comments on bumper stickers and banners yeah. and stuff around the western suburbs. I think up yours, Oakley was was one yeah. of them. But um, through that period, and then obviously through until July fourth, nineteen ninety six, when that that merger went through with Brisbane and Fitzroy, how did you deal with with that? kind of attention and what was the I guess what was your motivation to, to continue to push for those things having been through that experience in, in 88 89 well the, the motivation for it was that we felt at the time given the financial position that the league was in um, that we couldn't we couldn't keep 10 sides in Victoria alive um, Nowhere else in the world are there 10 professional football teams in one city. It just doesn't. It just doesn't happen. You need, you've got to have support behind it. Now, ours is a fantastic game, and ours has greater support than most leagues that you find around, dotted around the world. But we didn't have that, that much support to support 10 teams. And we were, we were struggling for dough. We were just starting to build a television program a network together and 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 getting uh, getting the television stations to understand the, the value of a national competition, but um, we still had these ten teams that were struggling in in Melbourne, and we didn't have the finances at the time to support them like they have today, and uh, and so the, the the pragmatic members of the commission said, look. If we can encourage a merger and we can encourage it by giving them, you know, some terrific benefits and some money, um, that's going to benefit uh, the league. But what what we didn't uh, really fully understand was, I think, the the depth of the passion, even in the poorly or even in the poorly supported teams. Fitzroy had 4,000 members, but the passion when it was, it was talked about a potential merger, and, and the same with the Western Bulldogs. I mean, they, they'd been trying to raise enough money to survive 
for like two or three years before the merger was a, a possibility. And uh, once, the, once the merger became a possibility, then um, uh, all hell broke loose. And all of a sudden, Footscray supporters came from everywhere. And um, I, I, I take credit for, uh, for the survival of Footscray because they, they raised something like $1.8 million from Up Yours Oakley stickers. <laughs> I, I reckon I should get some credit for that. <laughs> Um, oh, one, the, the, yeah. Just a, one other funny story. Um, um, I, I had my car in for service uh, down in South Melbourne. I was taking a, a cab back to the Lee um, and I had a, a, a taxi, you know, whatever you call them, um, voucher. And um, I, um, I gave the, 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 the cab driver the voucher um, and uh, – um, uh, you know, he, he was he was um, sort of filling filling uh, the, the voucher out, and he wrote O A K L E I G H, which is not the way to spell Oakley. And he looked up at the stop the lights at Swan Street, and he looked up, looked down, he crossed it out, and he wrote O A K L E Y. I thought, oh, that's that's pretty smart. He thought about that, and I looked up, and there's an Oakley. Up yours, Oakley bumper sticker on the car in front. <laughs> so uh, not so smart after all. You, you always got to use the reference materials around you. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, obviously, there's a lot of things that we we could ask, and, and I, I remember in in 1994, 95, the Save Our Saints campaign, and I was nine years old, and my dad yeah. actually explaining to me that the perilous position St Kilda Arena, and I went with him to Princess Park to watch St Kilda play Essendon, and we had the tins that were rattling and raising money, yeah. and yeah. St Kilda lost by 116 points that day, pouring rain, and I, but I just remember learning a lot through that. I mean, as somebody who in the inner workings of the league, how perilous was it for St Kilda during your time? How close did they come? And how hard was that in the back of your mind, knowing that you were a, a former player? Well, no, they were they were not as close as clubs like Fitzroy, Butchgrey, North Melbourne, and even Richmond at one point, even the famous Richmond club. And they, they were in a perilous state. And... Uh, um, so St Kilda didn't come quite as close as those teams did, but they were. Look, we had we had more than half the teams that were technically bankrupt in in the mid six in the mid eighties. Technically bankrupt. Um, the only way we could um, expand the national competition was to use other people's money, and that's why we went into private ownership. We couldn't do it ourselves. We didn't have the money. Private ownership. Whilst we now say, of course, that private ownership is it's long past and it's, it's, it's good that it's past, without it, we would not be where we are today. And I, I talk about the guys in Sydney who put millions of dollars in, the guys in Western Australia that put millions of dollars in. They are the ones that really saved the league because without their money, we couldn't have had a national competition. And a national competition has driven television revenue when I joined the league, it was $3 million a year. Now we're talking $250 million or $300 million a year. And that's what saved football. Now, moving from clubs to locations and one that was connected with St Kilda, 
Waverley Park. Yep. It sort of happened. Uh, well, the, the wheels were probably in motion when you were still there, but happened after you finished up. Was there yep. really any big plan put in place to try to make sure that uh, the ground's going to stay or was when you were still there, was it at the point of going, oh, there's pretty much no turning back on this one. It's got, it's gone. It's that's, that's it. Um, well, the view was at that time that um, Waverley wasn't working as a, as a uh, match of the day ground. It just wasn't, wasn't working. That it, it probably was better placed to have a, a couple of football teams playing out of it um, and, uh, and to make it a home, home ground for two teams. And at the time, um, St Kilda was, you know, uh, you had Moravan and, you know, all, all, the, all the issues that St Kilda had with grounds, I think they felt that Waverley was not a bad solution at the time. It wasn't that far away from the St Kilda support base. Um, and it was actually not a bad ground other than the fact that it rained too often and that the wind blew a fair bit. <laughs> but uh, they could be a home ground advantage, I would have thought, if you wanted to look at it positively. Um, but it, it, they, they were pretty keen and, uh, and they, were, they were into it because we, you know, they, they got a pretty good deal out of it. Um, but, um, you know, we moved on from then. We, we've, we've understood that, and we understood then that Waverley wasn't ever going to be um, the, uh, the, the, the highlight match of the week because it's too far away from things. Waverley, Melbourne's set up like the spoke of a wheel. You've got Melbourne as the hub, and then all the railway lines and the bus routes all run out from Melbourne. Waverley's not even on the end of one of the spokes. It's in between two spokes. Waverley Station doesn't get there, and, and the next one south of that, I think, is Oakley, or, or if you want to go further out, Dandenong. So if you want to get to Waverley and you didn't have a car, um, if you had a car, you'd probably wait an hour to get into the bloody ground anyway. But it's Six to get out. If you want to get out, yeah, more to the point of getting out. If you wanted to get to Waverley, you'd have to. If you lived in, in say, um, Collingwood, you'd catch a train into, into Flinders Street, get onto the Waverley line train, take the train out to Waverley, and then get on a bus to get to the ground. Well, you don't do those things these days. You can't do those. People won't, won't do that. So that's, that's where the, the, the Dockland Stadium came into uh, the. the, the vision of the of the league um, and it was Jeff Kennett that pushed it uh, pretty hard um, and it's it's turned out to be a, a great success because uh, you know you can get to it so easily it's got trams and, and, and rail and whatever else so um, I think we noticed we, we, we knew right from the outset that Waverley was a um, a second best, and and that's why we did the deal at the MCG to to put all the all the games of the of the day at the MCG and to try and and try and lift 
the importance of the MCG in, in the whole scope of things, and that's enabled the money to be generated to build the great stands that we've now got at the MCG. It was built off the back of football, not off any other sport. Uh, Ross, last one for me, and I'm sure we could keep going for a couple of hours just <laughs> chatting with you about the history of football, but um, yeah. you've mentioned already that the strength of the league relying on a, a strong Sydney club. Um, one of the things that, that happened in that kind of early to mid-90s period was the trade of, of Tony Lockett to the Swans. Um, yep. And there were a number of clubs, I think, at the time, including St Kilda, that thought he was a done deal to one of uh, another uh, bigger Melbourne clubs. You know, there was Collingwood and Richmond that, that were both involved in, in talks and discussions. Um, what are your memories of, of that period? And, and I guess walk us through that, that particular trade from St Kilda to Sydney. I, I honestly don't know the inside out of what happened there. I, I, I rarely got involved, in fact, I never got involved in any of the player trades, unless, of course, we found out that one was done underhanded or they were breaking the draft rules. Um, I don't know what happened with Tony Lockett. I, I presume that Sydney came up with a fantastic deal and, and sold him the whole concept of um, uh, his name in Sydney would would be, um, you know, like an absolute superstar. The focus would be on him. But he, it was interesting that Tony was actually a, a very quiet, shy guy, believe it or not, and, and I think he looked at Sydney and thought, I'm not going to have as much pressure on me up there. There's not going to be as much notoriety. And I think Sydney virtually eventually worked that out and was quite happy to just have the name Lockett there and have his presence on the field as opposed to, you know, being the superstar, as it were. Um, but I've got no idea what the deal was and how it was done. Uh, not the commission's business unless, of course, they broke rules. Lucky last one. Uh, looking into the modern times, obviously beyond your time in the game, were the AFL right in the way they handled the Giants and the Gold Coast Suns, and would they be right to put a team in Tasmania? Um, okay, the, the first one, the, the Giants. Sydney was always is all, was always going to be a market big enough to to take another team, um, and I think that's that's reasonably understood. The Gold Coast. Um, there's 600,000 odd people in the Gold Coast area, six or 700,000 people in the Gold Coast area. I and mean, we thought, we thought it was a, a, a decent market because the Brisbane Bears uh, went, went into that market. Um, but again, we had the wrong people running it, you know, case and I uh, don't, you want an hour, another hour? <laughs> case and Paul Cronin. It was a terrific guy, and he gave his heart and soul to that whole thing. But but he didn't know a lot about football, and 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 then and then um, Ruben Pellerman. Oh well, yeah, there's another hour. We we could do we could do a couple of hour programs on Skase Ruben Pellerman, and um, he uh, we arrived there one day. And he said, did you bring Tony Lockett with him? And I said, what do you mean? He said, we need a full forward. You, 
you need to give us Tony Lockett. I said, Ruben, have you heard of the draft? Uh, he said, what's, what's a draft? I said, well, you see, the way players transfer between clubs is a draft system and you, get, you have choices. No, I, we want Tony Lockett. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's what we were up against. <laughs> and uh, uh, I suppose to some extent you can see why it was tough. But see, he had the money and, and he, he helped that club survive because he put probably $6 million into it. And eventually they went to Brisbane, they went to the Gabba, and it's now, it's now its own story. But... Um, Looking back, you wonder how we ever got through it all, but we did. Eventually, it came out the other end, looking all right. <laughs> how do you uh, how do you feel about a Tassie side? Oh yeah, that was the other part of the question. Um, look, the great problem in Tassie is that uh, they've got a population of half a million, six hundred thousand, somewhere around that figure, and they're split in all the different. Um, uh, the towns. So um, that's that's one issue getting getting crowds that, that will uh, you know come from Launceston down to Hobart to watch a football match or, or the other way around. The other thing was uh, getting um, sponsorship support. The, the problem and it still is the problem. The problem in my time and, and it still is the problem. Tasmania is a branch office uh, on for most companies of Victoria. Now, the Victorian manager usually ran Victoria and Tasmania. Uh, and so where is he going to put his money? He's not going to put it down in Tasmania. He's going to put it in the Victoria where his base state and all that is. And there's no big corporations other than the hydroelectric and Cadbury in Tasmania. Or there certainly wasn't. There are a couple of other growing corporations now that were big enough to take on a major sponsorship of the local team. So we really had trouble working out that Tasmania could actually financially support an AFL team. And we didn't, it didn't have the money to say, well, here, here's, here's a hundred million dollars. We'll spread it out 10 million a year over 10 years, like we, they did with Greater Western Sydney and the Gold Coast. The league didn't have that sort of money then. Uh, so we weren't able to, to throw money into the ring. The Premier said, we'll put, we'll put $28 million in. And I said, for how many years? Understanding that the moment he got kicked out of office, will the next Premier put $28 million in? You know, you, politics is a... Is a politics is a... Is a uh, you know, a, a game that ebbs and flows. It depends on who's who's the premier and what what uh, what interest they've got in Australian football. So we weren't prepared to make a decision to put a Tasmanian team in off the back of government money. That just it wasn't going to it wasn't always going to be there. Now, of course, the league is very financial. It has money to support uh, uh, teams. Um, for over an extended period of time, and you have to you have to do it over an extended period of time, or you just you're, you're uh, it's just not going to work properly. Um, but they have got the money now, 
And I know there was a, a paper done not long ago by a, a former commissioner in my time, uh, Colin Carter, uh, about um, a team in Tasmania, and he argued that it was time and it was possible uh, with some league support. So let's see what happens. Uh, you know, it, it's a great football state. There's no doubt about that. Great foot. Some of the footballers that have come out of that place um, have been sensational over the years. So, you know, it, it, I think it's a possibility at some stage in the, in the future. Well, Ross, you were custodian over a period of great change for the game and we really appreciate you giving us uh, so much of your time tonight and, and obviously you were a, an unlucky but, but very good chapter of, of, of St Kilda's history as well. So thank you very much for, for, for joining us. That's a great pleasure. That was Ross Oakley joining us on Unplugged and uh, great for him to be as generous as he was uh, with his time uh, on the podcast. We look ahead to Melbourne. They're, they're going for, for 15 wins in a row. They're a, a fascinating case study in the sense that on one hand you look at it and they are dominant. They're clearly the team of this era that look like they're going to build themselves an era, but obviously you've still got to go out there and and get the job done. You compare them with the team that I've most compared them with for, for whatever reason has been the Geelong side of about 07 ish, where they appeared to have that ability to, to sort of flick a switch. And, you know, we can debate forever about the, the best teams of particular generations. They've only won the one flag at this point. So you can't put them in that conversation yet, but unlike that Geelong team and not that Melbourne fans had listened to this, it's not a criticism, but Geelong, used to just rip you to shreds where they, they'd launch the ball through the middle of the ground at a million miles an hour. They kick 23 goals and win by 80 and all of that sort of stuff. This Melbourne side is equally as dominant as that, but in a very different way. If you look at their record last year and their record this year, they beat everyone by four goals. So that they had the occasional blowout. They, they beat the Giants by 10 goals or something a couple of weeks ago. But they win every game by 25 points, 26 points, 28 points, 23, 17, five goals. They do, they do enough to effectively extend that margin to about that point. But what it feels like when you play them, if you get beaten by four goals, you walk away feeling like you could have won, which means that you, you get a few looks at them. They're, they're actually the second most... Or the, I'll rephrase that. Since the start of last year, they've had five goals in a row kicked against them, the second most amount of times in the competition behind only ahead of only the Kangaroos in that, that period of time. So they you get looks at them, but then they figure it out, lock it down, turn it around and, and run away. But I guess the point I'm saying is making is we should expect to be competitive and we, sh- we should expect to be a chance but everyone looks like they're a chance against them, but doesn't beat them. So do we find a point of difference somewhere along the way? Because if it follows the natural course of Melbourne games, they'll beat us 14, 10 to 10, 11, something like that. Beat us by four goals. We'll be within a kick at halftime and they'll just be too good. But it's a really weird situation and they win all the time, but they don't flog anyone. So I don't know what to make of that. Overall, outstanding midfield, outstanding ruck stocks, outstanding defence, particularly their interstep marking ability. They get players back from COVID. They get their coach back from COVID. Uh, we might have concrete in our shoes from the, the slop that we played in. You never know, but hopefully an eight-day break. Rowan Marshall named Zach Jones on the bench. So 
I know that's a, a pretty long-winded rant, but but H, I guess that the point I'm trying to make is you, you get a look at Melbourne, but you never beat them. So we've got to find a way to be the point of difference. You've just got to go back to the game against the Mushy mm. in round two. That we, I felt like we were almost the better team that night. We just made a few mistakes. They just kept us at arm length. Um, it, they were not dominant against us. Uh, it, just had a few things go their way and they beat us by, I think it was 18. 17 points. 18, 18 points, yeah. yeah. It, it was, it, it just, there was no, um, I guess, looking at that game going, well, there's the premier for this year because the next two weeks we came along and lost by 20 mm. goals. It's, it's that it, they didn't look like, okay, they're a massive team. They're going to beat everyone this year. They just sort of just did what they had to do that night. Um, a few things go our way. We're either a lot closer within a goal sort of thing, or we beat them. It, it, it was just one of those nights. It was, it was really, really frustrating. Um, I went away thinking we should have beaten them. And that, and that was the main thing I took from that game, that we should have beaten them that night. And we had no um, Ruckman in that game. It was neither Ryder nor Marshall. Yeah. It's, it's just things, as I was saying, just, just going against us that night. So it, it if you look at the way that how they went after that, you think, well, hey, that loss was actually a it was pretty good loss compared to the way we went and the way they went. Um, so yeah, it's just a as a frustrating night. We had our opportunities, and unlike what we've done the last two weekends, we need to take them. I mean, we go out and kick forty four eighteen against the Melbourne this week. They're going to beat us by hundred points, and that there's your issue right there that we need 18-4 against them, not 4-18. So it's a, it's a matter of we need to take our opportunities this week. We generally play the MCG quite well. We have in recent times played it very well there. Um, we've actually hit very straight there, which has been good. Um, so it's really a case of if we don't take our opportunities it's Melbourne's game to lose, um, and if we put it, we we put it to them, put them to the sword. It's absolutely every chance to beat them. Exactly, it's, it's and funny, then yeah, it's funny you mentioned Geelong as kind of that that dynasty or, or team style comparison because I look at them very similar to the way that, that Hawthorne kind of set up, especially when you look at the way they play out of defence. They take possession, you either at fullback or halfback or, or thereabouts, and kind of hold on to the ball, possess the ball until the right option comes, and then they slingshot forward and they move it really well through the middle. Uh, they, they can move it along the wing. They can move it through the corridor. They, they can do all that. We know how how phenomenal that midfield is. And then their, their forward line is... is they're not superstars, but it's just a really good blend of talls and smalls and mids. And um, I actually feel like like we're built in a, in a pretty similar way. Um, and I think that we play a similar style of football when, when we play our way of, of moving the ball, I, I feel like the, the big difference and, and we saw it last year and we've seen it before is that um, intercept defender, which we're, we're, you know, I think we're all hoping that Josh battle can, can become that kind of superstar intercept defender, but they've got one. Stephen May is the best in the business and, and, you know, last year and, and the year prior, we've just dropped it on his head 20 times a game and, and we cannot afford mm-hmm. to do that. I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, we, we've kind of worked out the way that we want to play. We, we haven't played like this um, the way that we want to play. We haven't played like this for a number of years. And I'm hoping that 
our ball movement and our forward 50 entry um, will be different to what it has been in previous years and, and that we don't end up doing that. Because if we do do it, then like you said, we'll, we'll lose by four or five goals because we'll just keep giving them back the ball. And you know, as, as soon as we give them back the ball, they'll have a, an opportunity to score because that's the way that they work. Um, so really that, that's, that's got to be the point of difference is that we've got to make Stephen May accountable and we've just got to stop dropping it on his head every time we move it forward. Yeah, and, if we and, do that, and if we don't do that, then don't do it to Jake Lever. There's correct. correct. It's, it's funny. Um, I think we play our best footy at the, the MCG. I know we don't play there a lot, but it, it sort of suits us a bit. And it'll sound that the stats might not necessarily support it, but I actually think it's the best place to play them. They're, they're pretty good there, and obviously. But uh, obviously last year, a lot of their late run towards the finals didn't come at, at that venue. But I actually think that if you are going to stretch and separate that defence, that's where you do it. If you are going to potentially poke some holes in them, it's it's at that venue. Very hard to do. They are clearly the best team in the competition. And I think the gap that they have on the next best team at the moment is probably the biggest we've seen from a side since Essendon in the, the year 2000, probably, or maybe Geelong in that 07 year that we we mentioned. But Everyone is obviously beatable. So last year they lost to the Giants at the MCG, the Bulldogs at the MCG, Adelaide in Adelaide, Collingwood in Sydney, and Drew with Hawthorne at the MCG. Uh, this year they, they beat the Bulldogs by 26, but conceded eight goals in a row. They lost to the Gold Coast by 13. Sorry, beat the Gold Coast by 13 is what I meant. They beat Essendon by about four goals, but were two goals down in the third quarter. Uh, they beat Richmond, but kicked poorly. Could have won that by a lot more. They, they flogged the Giants, as we know. Uh, they beat Hawthorne by 10 points, admittedly COVID-affected. And there was one other game that I'm forgetting. Uh, Port Adelaide, they beat by pretty easily uh, in South Australia. But again, five-goal results. So you get a look at them, but they do everything so right and they're so solid. And the other thing about them last year was apart from that Bulldogs loss, they didn't lose to anybody that was any good. They were vulnerable in those slip-up games like Collingwood and Hawthorne and things like that. Um, but every time they had a challenge from someone like Brisbane or Sydney or uh, Geelong, they would squish that challenge straight away. And, and I'm sure they'll be keen to do that to us again. They'll look at the ladder and go, oh, St Kilda are all right. They're on the move. We better squish them. But this will sound... You know, we, we've spoken about all of the doom and gloom and we'll get to that so St Kilda, but this is how our brains work sometimes. This is the optimism in me. My thought is, if we beat Melbourne, what does that tell us about us? So to me, that is the the exciting possibility and prospect that comes out of it. You don't allow yourself to think that far, but if you do for a moment, think about the possibilities if you do beat Melbourne in this game, the things that you're going to start to talk about come Monday, if that does eventuate. So I always love these challenges. I'm aware of how daunting it is, but why not? It's funny. I've spoken to a number of Melbourne fans over the course of this week, and and Mm. none of them are particularly confident. A lot of them have said that, you know, St Kilda is probably going to be our biggest challenge so far this season. And, you know, I think there's a number of reasons for that. It's, it's, it's the way that we've won different games against different opposition in different venues. And yeah, I think, I think occasionally we can, we can read too much into results like the one last Saturday night. And, and um, thank you to a few people who talked me off the ledge over the course of the, the weekend following that game. But um, I'm back on track now. And, and I, I kind of agree that, you know, this game is kind of set up for us to, to have a red hot crack 
Now you take all the external things and the concrete boots, like you, you mentioned, um, in in isolation, this game is the perfect game for St Kilda to win. They've lost against a lower ranked team. Uh, it's been one of those performances, and then they come against come up against the benchmark team in the competition. That's something that St Kilda's always been really good at doing: is rising to the challenge against the best team in the competition. You go back to to ninety five and beating Carlton in their premiership year, and um, yeah, there's there's a number of examples of, of that type of thing happening at St Kilda, and you know, you, you mentioned it before, the, the way that we play at the G, that Melbourne are potentially beatable at the G. They've got really good wingers. We've got really good wingers at the moment that, that are able to, to stretch defences, are able to stretch the, the ground, stretch um, the, the, the lines or the chains of possession. Um, and I'm not sure that Melbourne have, have played a team that do that the way that we do it with Bradley Hill, with Dan McKenzie, with Mason Wood, uh, with, with a number of guys, Jack Sinclair on the wing, uh, Wanganine Malera, uh, there's a number of guys that can do really individual special things to really stretch Melbourne's uh, wing defence, but also their their defence defensive fifty movement. And, and again, this is not something that we've had in the past. I'm really hoping that that we can uh, work out how to enter our forward line in a way that doesn't just cough it up time and time again. But I I really feel like having gone through that depression and frustration of Saturday night and Sunday morning and, and the rest of that weekend that um, I'm actually now kind of quite full of optimism coming into this game that I think we can give this one a really good shout. Just go back to the game. It was only just a few years back now um, at uh, 2019. Uh, um, or no, sorry, the late one in 2018, I mean. Um, Melbourne were on the way up. We were on the way down. So it was sort of, passing each other on the way through it seemed like that and oh, there was re- reports of Melbourne players running around the ground that day asking us where we were going to be in September thinking that oh yeah they'll, they'll certain just to get in there and then yeah we knock them off by two points and they ended up missing the finals I'm pretty sure so it was a it's they're a team that they've, they've matured since then but you can still see a little bit of that in them they can get a little bit chatty. They can get a little bit, I get, I guess, talkative out there. And if you get them off their game a little bit, they seem to be a team that you can get that little bit of an edge over at times. Um, it's they, they've added a few players like May and uh, I've got. I'm trying to think of a couple of other the senior sort of players that they've brought in since down. that. That they've sort of straightened those players up a little bit, though. Um, so you've kind of got to, I guess, if you're going to go that way and try to get a get them, I guess, talking it up, talking themselves up a little bit, you've got to get them off to the side by themselves. But it, it, there's still an ability to have that sort of edge over them to give them that false confidence in themselves, give them that. Yeah, on the day that they're beatable. They're, there's no doubt that any day they are beatable. You just need to do the right things. And the, that talk, if they try, they'll try to lure you in. They're, they're, there's no doubt about that. There's plenty of reports about there being a very chatty team. They lure you in, they talk you down, and all of a sudden you're all, you're, you've lost out to them. 
Yep. And, and I guess don't, they... Don't, yeah. Yeah, don't get sucked into that. that that's guess, the first thing you need to get, get right. And I know they've earned that, obviously, on the back of winning a flag and, and things like that. But my view is that, yes, best team in the competition, tremendous respect for the, the way they go about it, hardest team in the comp to beat. Do we win it? We can. Probably not, but we can. Um, it is a possibility. And, and my view is that you left four points in Cairns that you should have taken. Everybody thought that you were going to probably get six and two, that you'd beat Port and lose to Melbourne. You left the points in Cairns. You've got to roll up your sleeves and, and go and get them at the MCG against Melbourne and get yourself to where you were supposed to be and where everyone thought you'd be anyway. You're going to have to do it the hard way, but that's the challenge that's in front of you now. And, and I enjoy those challenges. I guess before we get to the awards, the bench... The, the extended bench is named as Patton, Long, Jones, Higgins, Windhager, Joyce, Burns, Campbell. I'm prepared to say that Campbell and Joyce won't play. So if one other name misses out of those five, Patton, Long, Jones, Higgins, Windhager, actually there's eight on the bench there, so two more will miss. So let's say Burns probably doesn't get in. So Joyce, Burns, Campbell. So then one misses out out of Patton, Long, Jones, Higgins, Windhager. Higgins will definitely play. So then it comes down to one missing out of Patton, Long, Jones, Windhager. What do we think? Is it Windhager that gets a rest? You, you imagine that Ben Patton plays. Um, probably. I feel, like, I feel like he's kind of stepped up a little bit over the last couple mm. of weeks since, since we asked him to, to lift. Um, <laughs> but... Yeah, it was interesting. I was I was down at Moorabbin today for the the morning training session, and it was interesting seeing Windhager and and Zach Jones both in the the white B team jersey, um, playing against I guess what you would call the the starters. Um, so that was that maybe gives a bit of insight into I guess who's on the cusp or, or who's on the bubble. Um, really liked Marcus Windhager's last couple of weeks. By the way, um, we all talk about. Naziah Wanganin Miller, uh, but I, I really like the way that he stepped up physically and provided a contest um, for for you know, the limited possessions that that he's won. Um, I think physically he's, he's shown a contest. Whether whether he's starting to tire and, and maybe needs needs a week in the twos or even a, a freshen up um, and, and a week off after last week, who knows? But it wouldn't surprise me to see one of Windhager or Jones potentially given another week in the twos. Um, and, and I think you're right that it, you know, it's Campbell and, and Joyce that miss probably Burns as, as good as he's been for, for Sandy in the last month or so. Um, and it, it'll be between those two in, in Jones and Windhager for that, that final spot. Yeah. I'm always getting to the point of, I mean, as much as I wouldn't want him out of the side, Bedlong could be the one. Um, I'd love to see Windhager keep his spot for this game because who's the what, what's the best team to have experience against? And that's the best team in the league. He's a, brand new to the club. It's eighteen. This this is where you learn the good habits against the best best teams. You don't think oh, send him out there against the team on the bottom of the ladder to go just. Oh, like run around and play how you want to play. You put them against the best teams. You make you show them this. This is the standard you have to play if you want to keep going in the league. It's it, it's a really big opportunity for him to yeah just experience it. Um, at the MCG, 
against the reigning premier. That's the perfect situation for to teach an 18-year-old. This is how the standard you've got to get to. Um, so it's a it's it's a really tough one. Um so someone is going to be very unlucky, I'll see, I think. So um yeah, I ever who it is is obviously going to be the medical sub. Uh, as as much as I hate that, but that's who that's who they'll be. Um so it's it's Mike it could be a situation that comes down to hopefully if it's going to be a wet day, which it sounds like it might be, there might be some better selections and then see what they roll with. Possibly. There's a certain player in the 22 that's desperately lucky to be there again, but we'll um, we'll talk about that a bit later on. But um, we look towards the awards. That's so St Kilda would be the way we start. I'm just going to keep a general one, and my general one is the whole fucking thing on Saturday night. <laughs> That's uh, that's so St Kilda, every aspect of it in every conceivable way. So uh, that'll be my contribution. But if either of you have something more specific. I don't know about you blokes, but I can't fucking bear losing a game like that. I was just going to go with the tweet that I put out. Um, I think it might have been on Sunday or I was actually, or no, it was late that night after the game because I was sitting there going, mulling over that and still mulling over the Adelaide loss last year and looked at it all up and, had a look in second halves at the two games we've played at Gazali Stadium. We've kicked 218 to 11.15. And you just go, that's terrible. And yeah, I mean, can we sell games to the MCG instead of to Cairns? Is that possible? Or because <laughs> to Tassie? Yeah, <laughs> I'd much, I'd much, oh, I think I'd much rather be down in Tassie. Yeah. I, we, we do say that we've got a reasonably fit team, but. I don't think we're training for humidity. It's certainly not one thing where we're not, I don't think we're training in a sauna. That's, that's obviously the one thing they skipped this last week. So, and, and the year before where we just cannot finish, finish off games up there. So the end of that experiment for us could be a good one as much as it's better than being in China. It's, it's, yeah, it, it's not working. And what's, what's more important, $600,000 or, four points with the possibility of getting two finals. As one of our friends, Scott Cooney, said, Cairns is a great place to holiday. You don't go there to play footy. But Nick, you're uh, yours. Oh, there's there's any number, isn't there? I mean, there are every week. And you look at um, you know, Melbourne getting all their all their guys back from from missing with COVID or COVID ISO last week. And then you look at our coaching staff that's, that's all going to miss the game this week. And you know, why can't we have... Why can't we play a team that's missing all their coaches or you know their players, etc. Uh, whenever we you know whenever we play, um, like you said, Darren, the whole fucking thing last week. <laughs> um, I think that's a pretty good way of of putting it. The the other one is having to go from you know the cold and and frigid weather in Canberra to the humid and and slop in in Cairns um, on a six or seven day break. Um, yeah, it's pretty pretty tough conditions to go from the cold to the the humid, the way that that we did. Um, but but really, the the one that stood out for me is Robbie Gray. I think if there's if there's any opposition play that epitomises that so St Kilda, there, there's probably two, and they're they're both from uh, from SA teams. There's Robbie Gray and there's Tex Walker. Um, <laughs> Robbie Gray is just about it. You knew you knew that he was going to be involved in that last 
couple of minutes, you knew that he was going to do something or create something or change something. And it didn't matter. We all knew it was going to happen and it happened. And that was so St. Kilda. He could do nothing all night and, and mm. still pop up yep. and beat us. It's, it's yeah. ridiculous. The Jason Blake award for uh, underrated contributors flying under the radar a little bit. Uh, H, you want to kick us off with that? Um, I, it was a little bit tougher this week. Um, as a sort of, sort of when I look back, it was a bit of an even spread. So I sort of went down that path of the younger guys. And it, yeah, the apology for Nazai Wangne Malira not getting a vote from me, I think I've got to throw him in here. Um, he, he's shown he's got some very good talent. And that that clean ball in the wet and the slippery conditions was was magnificent. Um, it, it's he can be a player that we can really use in sort of a, a number of positions. What it looks like he can he, he can control that wing. We can slip him forward. We can have him running off a back line a bit if we need him. It, it's he he's going to really provide us some really good ball for a long time. It seems so. Um, he, he's going to get the plaudits in time to come. So we may as well get him now when he's only getting a mention here and there. So before he becomes a star, we'll, we'll jump in. Yeah. It's, it's a tough one. I, I feel like we're kind of a little bit like Dan McKenzie in round three that we've been talking about him. So I'm not sure he kind of qualifies. And I feel, I, I feel a little bit the same way about uh, Nasir this week in that we're all, I think we're all kind of seeing this kid, turn into a bit of a star in, in front of us. Um, and I, I accept your explanation, H, that you didn't give him a vote. So therefore, uh, he counts this week and, and that's completely fair and, and I'll accept that. But I'm going to go with the other the other rookie who, who I mentioned a little bit earlier in Marcus Windhager. Um, clearly not getting the plaudits, clearly not doing the, you know, the special spectacular things that, that we're seeing out of uh, Nazaya Wanganin Miller, but... He's doing some hard things and he's doing some clever things that potentially don't get noticed as much. Um, and, and I've been really impressed with him over the last couple of weeks. There were a couple of moments uh, two weeks ago that I thought standing up under pressure uh, in, in the final quarter, laying hard tackles, putting his body on the line. And I think he did it again on the weekend in, in the, the slop in Cairns. Um, just doing some little things that, that don't necessarily, you know, get a stat or get the plaudits, but, um, I feel like he's doing those things that you need to be doing later on in your career to, to, to really solidify your role in a team. And he's doing that, you know, four games into his career. Um, I feel like Marcus Windhager can be a really special player. And, and if he's doing some of these kind of 1% type things right now, then imagine what he can do once he actually gets his sea legs and, and is able to show the type of form that he showed you know, against some of the younger players um, last year uh, that when, when he kind of, realizes what he can do physically and, and he understands, you know, the type of play that he can be, that he can be a really special player for us. And, and I feel like he probably deserves a bit more recognition for, for some of those little things that uh, he's not quite getting at the moment. Yeah. I don't know. My one's again, probably a guy who's very, very well known within the club, obviously. And, and we've 
spoken to him on this pod, but he wouldn't be, I think, in the first 10 people that the media mentioned about St Kilda, but there's every chance he's leading the best and fairest. Um, I still feel that there's more room for praise for, for Seb Ross's year. I think he's been excellent. Um, we talk of Gresham and Sinclair and Steele and Marshall and then King and Higgins and Battle and all of that type of stuff before you get to him and uh, even Crouch. But I think his contribution has been as good as anyone's as to why we've been the way we were. And I thought he kept running and fighting on the on the weekend. So um, I know he's a polarising player sometimes with his ball use, but he's been excellent this year. And I don't think anybody can deny that um, over the course of the season. The uh, Shannon Noll Awards for who's got a lift... There are a few out of that. I'll give, I'll give an honourable mention to certain sections of the media. Uh, two in particular. There was the nine things we've learnt on the AFL website, and their suggestion was that because St Kilda had a meeting in Cairns last year after the Adelaide loss, a crisis meeting to reevaluate things, and the headline was that St Kilda needed to have another one of those meetings. At five and two, when you've lost by a point, having won five games in a row with 61 inside 50s, give me a spell. And then the Triple M conversation the following day about whether Brett Ratton was the right man to lead St Kilda going forward. When you're in the top four, having won five of your last six with the only loss being by a point with 61 inside 50s when you kick four goals 18 in a sold home game. So I understand that you know, people have these sorts of opinions and maybe we'll end up in crisis in a few weeks, but don't give us that bullshit at five and two. That is ridiculous. Uh, and the other one that I wanted to give, the legitimate one, was um, it's had a great year, but but Max King, he nearly cost us the Giants game with poor conversion and uh, effectively, you're not going to put it on him because they all miss shots, but horrendous miss in the third quarter and then a big miss early in the last. Uh, I'm sorry, Max, you're a star and you're going to be a superstar you've got to kick those uh, and you miss a lot of them, uh, that, that sort of 20 to 25 metre range. Um, and as we say, a lot of these are moments. You've done so much right this year, but you've got to kick those. Simple as that. Very similar in the way of someone has done many right things this year, Done did probably a lot of right things in the game on during the game of Saturday night. But I'm going down the other end of the ground. And you gave it a little bit of a mention to it earlier, but Dougal Howard running away from the grey in that last minute, you've got to know the name, the game better. You've got to understand the situation better. There's just every week, I think I say to myself at some point, God, Dougal, what are you doing? There's always a situation, and you sort of you sort of think, what is he thinking in that situation? what's going through his mind to think that was the better way to, or the best option to take. It's just, just a couple of brain fades every, every week that you sort of think that's cost us a goal or that's cost us something or that's, that's just stupidity. Um, I, I, I was, that's basically as soon as that ball's gone to gray and he's around the other way, I've got up out of my seat and absolutely lost it because I knew exactly what was about to happen. Um, he's the closest player to where Gray was. Um, Wilkie was about 10 metres behind him, I reckon. 
like off to his off to his side. He was on Wilkie was on the better line, but Dougal was much closer, and he gets up there and shuts that down. I mean, the Gray might have to kick over the top of him, but the chances are that Wilkie then gets across and he's the first one there to where the ball lands when after Gray kicks it up in the air over Wilkie's head. So it's he's just got to think think a little bit better sometimes. Assess the situation. What What is the best option here? And he really does need to pick the right option a bit more often than he does. And, and if there's anyone who should know the damage that Robbie Gray can do, it should be Dougal Howard. Uh, you know, yep. would have yep. would have been alongside him and and matched up in the general area in training for a number of years with with Robbie Gray at Port. He should know exactly what Robbie Robbie Gray Gray was thinking and about to do. And and yeah, you're right. Should have should have absolutely shut that down. And and if not gotten to the kick, then just put pressure on, put the pressure on, and, and make him accountable. Like you said, make him kick over you, um, and not just amble in and and be able to take a take a, a straight shot. Uh, on goal because I mean it was just so easy it didn't matter if he kicked the goal or kicked a point as long as he scored um, and Dougal Howe just needed to make that a lot harder for him to do that um, so you're right I completely agree there but my uh, my Shannon Oll award goes to not one particular player and, and Paco you mentioned Max King and and I agree that he misses way too many of these chances but um, my Shannon Oll award goes to the entire goal kicking forward coaching structure, coaching group, that this is not a new issue for our football club. This is not a new issue for Max King or Jack Higgins or whoever it is. Um, I don't know if you guys saw on on the Sunday footy show, uh, Matthew Lloyd going through Max King's routine, of which there really isn't any. He kind of stands there and he flips the ball around and and he doesn't just twirl the ball. He He literally flips it around from side to side the, the seam of the ball is never in one spot. He's flipping it up and down. He's flipping it side to side. And by the time he kicks the ball, that seam, you look at the greats, whether it's Lockett or Dunstall, whoever it is, that seam is perfectly center facing the direction that you're trying to kick. And that seam is all over the shop when Max King eventually drops the ball onto his foot. And it, it, it seems like such an obvious, an obvious issue to fix. To, to focus on and, and fix over a period of time. And it just baffles me. It, it, it boggles my mind that our goal kicking coaches, our forward coaches are not taking the time with Max King and with Jack Higgins to go through set shot routines in a, in a better manner to the point where these guys know exactly what they're going to do from the moment they take possession of the ball and they put the ball down, they pull the socks up, and they line up for a set shot, they should know and they should do the exact same thing every single time, and they don't. And it boggles my mind. Yep, yep. Yep. I've, I've had issue with that for a while too. Um, <laughs> uh, someone just needs to show him a video tone and lock it, and the ball absolutely dead still. That that mm. ball did not move. Like he, he actually put his arms in position and walked in, and the ball never moved. Um, it, it, it's proven. It's a proven um, way to do it, but it's it's just something that's crept into players these days. That uh, don't know if it's trying to be fancy or or in his case, I don't know if it's nervousness the, the that way, he's fiddling the, with it or uh, yeah. The, the way Lloyd described it was that it's just limiting 
the the room for error. You know, you control the, the state of the ball from the moment you, you drop it from your hand onto your boot. And yes, some players drop it from higher, they drop it from lower, but the steadier you keep the ball, you limit the room for error. And we just don't seem to have that across the board. I mean, Tim Embry's our, our best kick for goal and, and he's proven himself over a long period of time to be a very, very good kick for goal. Um, but the rest of the rest of the team just seems to struggle in this regard. And there's, there seems to be no continuity or structure or technique that goes into this part of the game. And it, it is the single most important part of the game is conversion. And, and we know how often it's cost us. Yep, 14 goals, 35 in, in two weeks. It's, um, yeah, it's biting us on the arse that we got away with it once, not the second time. But we look ahead to Melbourne, trying to get ourselves back on track, but back on the winner's list. It's a tough task, but go get them, Saints. We'll enjoy it. Happy Mother's Day to all the Saints mums out there, of course, over the course of this coming weekend. And on Sunday, hopefully the Saints give you the ideal result. Enjoy your weekend and go Saints.